Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this Friday episode, we are taking a week or two off from our regular series with James Jordan. And here we have Peter Lighthart's lecture on the God of Hope that he recently gave at the Theopolitan Ministry Conference. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. And specifically, we would love for you all to sign up for the Theopolis app. You can find that in your neighborhood app store. And that will be an essential tool going forward as a ton of content is coming down the pipe that will hit that app. And you will have all of that audio and video in one place. We really hope that you enjoy this lecture and are encouraged by it, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Peter Lightheart speaking on the God of Hope. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he dwells in us as our hope of glory. Uh, Thank you that you are a God of hope, the God who gives hope, the God who has spread hope abroad to the Gentiles, who's brought hope into the world. We thank you that you are the God who is is our hope, in whom we hope. We pray that you would fill us with hope as you fill us with love and with faith, that we would know you, that we would reflect your life in the world, in the midst of your church, that we would be a hopeful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The premise of my lecture and of the whole conference is the world is a mess. And rather than spend any time explaining why I think that's the case, I'm going to take that as a premise that we can all agree to. Whatever specific ways you think the world is a mess, it may differ from the ways I think the world is a mess, but I think we're all agreed that today's world is a mess. And the question we want to address in the next couple of days is not how bad is the mess or what has made it a mess, There's a good deal of discussion of that. Uh, We want to talk about how we respond to the world that we face. And there are some responses, some responses that we know cannot be a Christian response. We know that despair is not an option for Christians. We cannot be a despairing people about this stage of history, about our own lives, about the life of our church, about the life of the church in general, we cannot be a people of despair. That is the contrary to the gospel. The gospel is a message of hope. But I think that what infects us is probably less despair and more a tendency, a temptation to seek survival. Rather than despairing about the state of the world, we decide we want to cope. Uh, We want to keep our sanity in the midst of a world that seems to be going insane. We want to keep our stability in a world where everything that seems to be stable is becoming unstable, where all the ground is falling away beneath our feet, and we just want to find some place where we can stand firm. We want to find some place of refuge, some place where we can retreat. You know, like Jesus says in John 16, be of good cheer. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I am here to help you cope. 
no, that's not right. Uh, be of good cheer. I'm here to help you adjust your expectations to make them more realistic. Jesus wouldn't say that. That's much too, uh, uh, much too, too much verbiage. He's much more pithy than that. We know, we know what Jesus says. Be of good cheer because I have, I have, have, have overcome the world. Why don't we be a grammatical a pedant for a moment? That's a perfect tense, which means that it's something that has occurred in the past that has continuing effects in the present and into the future. I have overcome the world. Uh, Jesus is declaring victory. He's not just predicting victory in the future. He is declaring victory. I have overcome the world. That's the word for victory, for conquest. I have conquered the world. Jesus says this just before his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And even then, Jesus is able to say, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. The conquest of the world does not mean we are without tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. But we can be of good cheer in the world in which we have tribulation because Jesus has conquered that world. We have to be a people, we're called to be a people that's filled with hope for that victory, confidence that that victory has already happened. We want to be filled with a deep, exuberant, audacious, jubilant, irascible, that's from Thomas Aquinas, irascible, confident, patient, calm, childlike hope. That should characterize each one of us as we face whatever confusions we have in our own personal lives, as we face whatever confusions there are in the world around us, that is the kind of demeanor that we should have as we face these tribulations and challenges. But where do we find that? How can we come to that kind of hope? Not just coping with the world, but hope that is based on confidence that Jesus has, in fact, conquered. And because he has conquered, he will conquer and will continue to conquer. Where does that come from? It comes, of course, from God. And what I want to spend my time this afternoon doing is talking about the phrase that Paul uses in Romans 15, which was read for us uh, at Matins. Let me reread verses 7 through 13. I will not chant it as Brian did. Accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, I will sing to thy name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope fill you with joy and peace that you may abound in hope. What does it mean to say that God is the God of hope? Well, in the context, it certainly means that God is the source of our hope. We abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us. We have hope because God is with us and in us and gives us the ability to hope and maintain hope and be stable and constant in hope no matter what the circumstances we're in. God is the source of hope. God is also the object of hope. God is the one in whom the Gentiles place their hope. They're looking to God to realize and fulfill all their desires and aspirations. Jesus is the desire of nations. He's the desire of Israel, but he's also the desire of nations. And all the nations, ignorantly, confusedly, have been looking for Christ. And now the Christ has come and the Gentiles are going to place their hope in God, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The God of hope is God of hope because he is the object of hope. But I want to suggest that there's something even deeper going on in that phrase from Paul. Not only that God is the source of our hope, the one who gives hope to us, and not only the God who is the object of our hope, but I want to suggest that God is the giver of hope and the object of our hope because hope is a quality of God's own life. If we want to, again, be grammatically pedantic for a moment, that, that genitive, God of hope, is and it, all, genitives are always, always ambiguous. Is that the God who has hope or is the God who gives hope? What kind of genitive is that? I'm suggesting that it's describing a God whose life is characterized by hope. Let me ease into that. That might sound kind of weird for God to be a hopeful God. We can think about the three theological virtues as they're called, faith, hope, and love. Those are three gifts that God gives us that characterize our life. I want to suggest that those are our three attributes of God's own life. And to see how this works, of course, we have to remember that God is triune, that God is a communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. And as a communion of Father, Son, and Spirit, God is the God of love. That's easy. Everybody knows that. Uh, Augustine said that. God is, God is love because he is triune, because he's not only a lover, but he is also in himself an object of love, and he is in himself the love that joins the lover to the object of his love and the beloved to the lover. That is, he is the spirit who is himself love. God is a communion of love. God is love in that he's triune. And I want to suggest that we can say the same thing about the other theological virtues. The theological virtues are not just descriptions of virtues that God gives to us. Settled habits of life, settled dispositions of life that God gives to us, but they are things that God gives to us because they characterize his own life. Not just love, 
but also faith. Does God exercise faith? Does faith characterize the life of the Trinity? Well, faith certainly characterizes the life of Jesus in his incarnation. He trusts the Father. He entrusts himself to the Father. And that entrusting himself to the Father is a product of the Father entrusting a mission to the Son, sending the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The Father trusts the mission of God to his Son, and that mission of God is carried out by a trusting Son, a Son who absolutely trusts his Father. In the economy of redemption, as we call it, in the gospel story, in the gospel events, we see mutual trust between father and son. And in the economy of redemption, God is opening up his inner life to us. God is showing us what, is like, what it's like to be on the inside of God, as it were. God is opening up the mutual communion and trust and love that exists between father, son, and spirit. So the the trust that Jesus has for his father, the entrustment that the father gives to the son in the incarnation is not just something that is true of Jesus in the uh, the son in the incarnate state, but is true of the life of God himself. I've been using the word trust as a synonym for faith, and that's that's one one of the potential synonyms for faith. I almost said cinnamon. Synonyms for faith, you know. Faith is not just, it's not just believing certain things to be true. It's not just uh, believing so that we can be saved. It's a relationship of trust. And also, faith is a relationship of loyalty. To believe in Jesus is to take Jesus' side in the great drama and the great battle of history. That is what it means to be a believer in Jesus, that we're loyal to him. We have allegiance to him. And that's what it means for Jesus to trust his Father. His allegiance is with his Father, and nothing will make him deviate from the mission that his Father has given him. He absolutely trusts his Father. When he goes to the cross, he entrusts himself to the judge who judges justly, knowing that he will be vindicated. And he goes to the cross with absolute and utter and infinite loyalty, to his father. And that's not just, again, a loyalty and allegiance that the persons of the Trinity have in the incarnation and in the economy of redemption. That is the loyalty and faith that characterizes the life of God. How can we be loyal to Jesus? How can we be loyal to the Father of Jesus? It's because we participate in the loyal life of God Himself through the Spirit. I want to suggest we can use a similar kind of argument to say that God is a God of hope. This one is harder to make a case for. Hope is defined as expectation of future good. Hope is something we have for things that are yet future. It's future good. If we anticipate bad things in the future, we don't call that hope. We call that fear or anxiety, anticipation of a future good. But how can that characterize the life of God? 
Because God doesn't live in time. God isn't waiting around for something to happen. God doesn't lose things that have happened in the past. We're constantly dying to the past and fresh things are coming in the future. That doesn't characterize the eternity of God. So how can hope be characteristic of the life of God? Again, I think we have to think in Trinitarian terms. Even though God does not exist in time, there is in God a certain order and movement of the persons that is the uncreated root and pattern of time. As uh, uh, Robert Jensen, the great Lutheran, American Lutheran theologian, late American Lutheran theologian put it, there is a whence and a whither in the eternal life of God. There is an origin, a person from whom the Son is begotten, and there is a whither, there's a destination, the Son and the Spirit who come from the Father. That's all eternally happening. It's not like the Father begins to beget the Son and the Son comes into being. Of course, that would be heresy. I'm not saying that. There's no interval of time, and yet there is an interval of personal difference. The Father is the source and the beginning and the origin. He's the whence. He's the one from whom. The Son is the one who comes from the Father. The Spirit is the one who completes the life of God. The Cappadocian fathers talked about that God's works outside of himself as having a Trinitarian structure. Everything originates in the Father. Everything God does originates in the Father, is carried out and mediated by the Son, and is completed and glorified in the Spirit. That's how God's works in the world. And I'm suggesting that we should think that that is also the life of God in himself. Because again, his work in the world is opening up of his own internal life. So God does not, the, the Father does not bestow the Spirit on the Son and have to wait around. Is the Son going to return that glory? Is he going to honor me? There's not an interval of time, but there is an interval of personal difference that makes it possible for us to say, God is a God of hope. The Father eternally begets and anoints his Son in eternal anticipation of the Son's loyalty and love and glorification back to the Father. In fact, the glorification from the Son to the Father has always already happened. We've got to eliminate intervals of time. But there still is this interval of personal difference uh, that is uh, the origin of time. We live from whence to whither. We live from the past through the present into the future. God lives that way, timelessly, eternally. But his eternal life is the pattern of created time. We can put this somewhat differently and say this. The Father is Father only as he extends himself beyond himself. That's an abstract way of putting it, but think about it. If the Father did not beget a son, would he be Father? A Father is a person who has offspring, who has begotten someone. The Father is Father. The Father is Father. That's who he is. But he's only Father because he begets another, the Son. And the Father and Son are communing, a commune with each other eternally only because of the common procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Each person is who he is only by extending beyond himself into another. 
And the God is who he is only by that eternal dynamic and movement of triune life. That's the uncreated model and root for created time because temporal things are what they are only in extending beyond themselves. We are the creatures we are only because we continue to be the creatures we are. If we stop being the creatures we are, we just aren't (laughs) anymore, right? Life exists only as it is more life. Time continues only as there are more moments of time. And that movement of time is a reflection of the movement of life within God from the Father who begets the Son and who with the Son uh, breathes out the Holy Spirit. So I think in those terms we can talk about God as a God of hope. Uh, He's a God of love because he lives in an internal communion of love. He's a God of faith. Faith is a characteristic of the life of God because the three persons are utterly, completely, infinitely loyal to one another. God is a God of hope because uh, the Father gives the uh, uh, Spirit to the Son, glorifies the Son in the Spirit, and is in expectation, and always already realized and a fulfilled expectation of a, a return of glory. Now, if that's the God that we, that we worship, if that God is the creator of the world, the God of hope, then we might expect hope to be part of the structure of reality. And I'm going to suggest that it is. God has created a world in which hope has a natural home, in which things cannot be what they are. They cannot flourish as the created things that they are without hope. Because the God of hope has created a world that is structured and oriented toward hope. And hoping, living in hope, is living in with the grain of the universe. We want to put it that way. It's living in tune with the harmonies of the way God created the world. It's living in tune with the harmony of God's own triune existence. Let me give some examples of what I mean. Uh, Think about time itself. What is time? Well, time, you could say, is a sequence of nows. Because when I said now, that was a now. Now, I'm saying now again, that's another now. I said it again, now. A sequence of nows, each distinct from the other, each immediately passing away, even before we can say now, it's gone. That's the way time has often been conceived. That seems to be kind of a commonsensical understanding of, of time. This is the way Augustine thinks about time at various places in his writings. Uh, The past doesn't exist anymore because it's past. The future has not yet been. The The only moment of time, the only phase of time that actually exists is the present. And well, it doesn't exist really either because as soon as it exists, it's gone and it's in the past. I don't think that's a really helpful way to think about time. Uh, To think of time as a series of discrete isolated moments. I think and we instead need to think about time as inherently oriented toward future. The present doesn't just, isn't just followed by the next moment, but the present is, as one writer puts it, pregnant with the future. And the next moment is the giving birth of what was present already in some kind of seed form in in that present moment. Augustine always liked to use uh, 
uh, sentences as an example. Yeah, I start a sentence and you don't know where the sentence, in fact, I don't know where this sentence is going because I just started for illustration purposes. But the present of those words that I'm speaking is leading to a future culmination that will be form, hopefully, a meaningful sentence. Each moment of the sentence is pregnant with the next moment of the sentence until it reaches its culmination, a kind of little eschaton with, with the period, or the question mark, or the exclamation point. Okay. Each, uh, each line of a song, this is another uh, uh, illustration of Augustine, each line of a song is like that. Each present moment yields to the next moment, and it exists only as it yields to the next future moment, and each present moment is pregnant, as it were, with the next moment. If you're, if you're a singer and you're trying to sing each note discreetly, you're not singing very well. That's, that's very elementary kind of singing. If you're learning a piece for the first time on the piano, then you might have to plunk out each chord in isolate. But that's not the way it's supposed to be played. Each moment of the piece is supposed to be opening up into the next moment. So each of our present moments is in fact oriented to the future. Time itself is oriented to the future. And the future is actually the source of the past. We don't, there's one way to think about it. There's a lot of ways to think about time, but one way to think about it is that the, the, the past becomes past because the future emerges. Okay. It's only because the present becomes another moment that the, present, the previous present has become past. If there is no future, then there is no past either because everything just exists in that single present moment. Hope you're following. Okay. So the future, the world is built, this is, what, this, is the, this is the punchline, the world is built with an orientation to the future. Time itself, in each present moment giving birth and being pregnant with and orienting us toward the next moment, the past actually emerging as the present yields to the future, that's how the past emerges. Time itself is structured toward the future. And if time itself is structured toward the future, then time itself is structured uh, in order to encourage and elicit hope. Because hope is an expectation of future good. We can think about cosmic history. This is maybe an easier example to give. Uh, the world was created with an, with an uh, already existing movement toward an eschaton. The world wasn't created to stay as it was at the beginning with Eden and the Garden of Eden and a steady state that was, gonna, that was supposed to be permanent forever. We know that from Genesis 1 and 2. That's really obvious from the commission that Adam has given. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The world is supposed to get different. It's supposed to get fuller. Adam is supposed to take dominion over it. He's supposed to subdue it, to conquer it to uh, tease out the potential that, is, that got built into creation. The world after Eden is not supposed to be the same as the world of Eden. Cosmic history is, from the beginning, is oriented to some future, some future um, fulfillment. And that continues under sin. Romans 8 makes this clear when, it talks, when Paul talks about creation itself under the curse and under the frustration and the vanity of sin of the curse. Creation itself, groaning within itself, 
creation itself hoping for its own fulfillment, looking forward to the redemption and the unveiling of the sons of God, which will be the redemption of all of the creation. Uh, our cosmic history is oriented to the future. It's oriented so that hope is a natural thing. And even individual things, I think, also have this kind of orientation to hope. I'm, I've been, I just finished a manuscript on creation, so I've been thinking a lot about Genesis 1 and 2. You think about what happens to the first, crea- the first creature in Genesis 1. Light is the first thing created. What does the light do on day one? It shines. It shines over water, because there's a deep down there. It uh, then goes out somehow. There's not a sun yet for a sunset, but the sun, it goes out. So it's ordering time. Light already has some tasks. Light already has some glory, some things that it does from the first time it's created. You think a few days ahead, day three. Day three dawns, and God separates or gathers the waters so that the dry land appears. What is light doing now? Light is shining on things it's never shown on before, not directly, because dry land has appeared. And plants be- begin springing up. Light has been shining over a, a watery, vast sea. And now light is shining on all the different colors that plants produce. This is a potential and a glory of light that light didn't have at the beginning. It's becoming more fully itself as the creation week goes on. And it's beginning, we we don't know this from Genesis 1, but we know from scientific discovery that that the light of the sun is is, uh, catalyzing photosynthesis. It's making, making plants grow making plants flourish. It doesn't do that on days one and two. It begins doing that on day three. It begins shining on animals, land animals on day six. It begins shining on man, and the sequence of day and night that God had set up at the beginning becomes the structuring of time for human beings who are aware of the structuring of time and begin to count how days are structured and begin to measure time in different phases, different uh, uh, discovery, just looking at the sky and seeing how the sky is setting up a different, uh, more complex calendar. That's all, that's all new stuff that light is doing on day six that it wasn't doing on days one through five. And each day, light is discovering some new potential. It's shining on some new thing until the last day when the sun is no more and it gives way to the light of the Lord and the light of the Lamb. All through that history, the the individual thing, light, the individual creation light, is developing and becoming more fully itself. And light, if we could personify it, light anticipates future betterment. And I think that's true of every created thing. Every created thing exists in order to become more and more fully itself as it grows and as it proliferates as it comes into contact with new, uh, new other things. Creation is oriented toward a future, oriented to a, a greater good in the future. Or we can think about it this way. God spoke the world into existence. God spoke words of command. And the creation is the obedience to that command. 
But God's word is also promise. When God speaks into the world, he speaks things that actually are words that speak of him. He speaks words that creates uh, created words. Everything around us speaks of God. And everything around us is a token of God's promises. Everything around us is a promise. Every created thing is a promise of some future better and more glorious thing. I think of the, the humble acorn. The humble acorn uh, is glorified into a great oak tree. The even humbler sperm and egg becomes the image of God. Sperm and egg are filled with promise. That's what they are. Each created thing is a promise of future greater glorification of that thing. And that's what they are. That's what, that's what each thing is. The creation itself, the, we want to call it the inanimate creation. I've been talking about light. I've been talking about plants. All, all creation is created with the same kind of orientation toward the future, and particularly human beings. We're created for future glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is a natural man, there is also a spiritual man. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The fact that we're going to receive spiritual bodies at some time in the future is not because we fell into sin. That was already pre-programmed, as it were. That plan was already in place as soon as God made Adam with a natural body, a soulish body, as Paul describes it. The aim was for Adam to eventually be glorified so that he would have a spiritual body. That trajectory toward an eschatological fulfillment is built into the creation. We see this already in Genesis 2, as Jim Jordan has told us over and over again. There are two trees in the garden. Actually, Genesis tells us that part. There are two trees in the garden. The first tree, the tree of life, is available freely to Adam. He's supposed to eat it. The second tree is withheld for a time, and it represents an elevation of office, an elevation of glory, an elevation of honor, an elevation of status. Adam was not going to stay in the garden. He wasn't going to stay eating the tree of life forever. He was going to eat the tree of life until he came to the point where the Lord was ready to elevate him and exalt him into a higher state of humanity, to become more fully human, which means becoming more fully divine because we are images of God. That's built into humanity, that orientation toward the future. That's the, that's the big picture of human development. The big picture of human development is from uh, Adam to the last Adam, from dust to uh, glorified, the glorified bodies that we'll have in uh, the new creation. And this is written into uh, the, the mundane details of our lives. Right? Everything we do, we do in hope. Everything we do, we do in expectation for future good. Why are you here? You're wondering. I pose that question. Why did you come to this conference? Uh, you thought that the, the lectures might be edifying or interesting. Uh, you knew that some other people, some friends of yours, were going to be here, and you want to renew friendships and get caught up with each other. You wanted to make new friends. You have lots of reasons for being here, but all of them involve expectation of some good you're going to receive. So why you took the trouble to 
come as far as you have to be at this conference. We do that constantly. Everything we do uh, is done toward an end, as Thomas Aquinas tells us, an end that we consider good. All our, and, and those are all goods that are in the future. Uh, we're, we're aiming for something that we don't yet have. That's the structure of human life. It's the structure of human knowledge. It's often uh, neglected when people talk about knowledge, but uh, Esther Meek, who will be with us tomorrow evening uh, speaking at our feast, likes to remind us that knowledge is a venture of discovery. That's what, that's what human knowledge involves, is uh, going out in a sometimes risky venture to try to discover and know something you don't yet know. And you do that because you hope to know it. If you didn't have any hope that you could discover the structure of an atom or the ways that genes work in plants, the ways genes work in maize, you wouldn't engage in years and years of study. Uh, all scientific endeavor, all, all, all adventures of discovery are guided by and motivated by hope for some future insight, some future deeper understanding. That's why we investigate things. We investigate things in hope. I think there are dimensions of love and faith in that too. We could, we could develop that. But I'm focusing here on, here on hope. Or you think about, um, you want to understand just the world in general. You want to understand why Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, can, you, can you, as uh, T.S. Eliot asked, can you bear so much reality? Can you take it? If, uh, can, can you face up to reality as it actually is with all its messiness and evil and violence and actually engage with it and try to understand it? How can you do that unless you have some hope not only for discovering truth, but some hope that someday it's all going to work and be, be reconciled. Someday, the press are going to be vindicated. Someday, uh, those who have been abused are going to see their, uh, are going to be elevated. Those who have been oppressed are going to be raised up. Those who have been, those who have been cast down are going to be raised up. We can only bear the, that much reality if we, uh, if we are filled with hope, not just for discovery of truth, but for uh, the, the future of the world. But hope, of course, goes wrong in sin. We hope in the wrong things. We hope in idols. We hope in money. We hope in our own prowess and cunning. We might actually hope in actual idols, thinking that certain other deities can provide the things that only God can provide. We're supposed to hope for glory. We're created to hope for glory. We are created for greater glory. Hoping for glory is not a sin. But when we fall into sin, then that hope for glory becomes a source of rivalry, hatred, violence, all kinds of evil. Because we think that there's a limited supply of glory. And if anybody gets more than their share, then that's less for me. So the pursuit of glory, which is a created pursuit turns into rivalry, or our hopes become unstable. We despair, or as I said at the beginning, we settle for coping 
instead of genuine hope. Now, the gospel is specifically directed to renewing our hope. It unveils the God of hope, as I've been describing. It unveils the God who gives hope, the God who is the object of our hope, the God who is himself hope. And God, by the Spirit, gives us a share in the hope that he is. I cited already the Colossians passage. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the gospel promise. That the God of hope is not just out there, the God we can look to for future good, but he dwells in us so that the hope that he is is somehow becomes our own life. As Paul says in Galatians, uh, uh, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life that I live. The life of hope that we live is the life of Christ living in us, Christ who is our hope. Not only Christ who is the destination of our hope, but Christ who is the Son of the God of hope, living in us, giving us hope. Hebrews 11 talks about faith as uh, the substance of things hoped for. Uh, one of the best essays you can find on hope is uh, Benedict XVI's encyclical, uh, Spe Salvi, Hope of Salvation. And he spends a lot of time talking about uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 11 and points out that sub faith as the substance of things hoped for. Substance is like a foundation. It's something that's, uh, that's at, the, at the bottom that's holding us up. And yet the things that we hope for that we haven't yet received, they become the foundation. So the gospel promise is that the future things have become present. This is just standard already not yet talk. The future things have become present. And so the things that we hope for are not just future goods, but we already share in some way in, those, in the present. The Spirit forms, through the gospel, a community of hope, a people of hope, who share hope and inspire hope in one another. And this, this has got to be a high priority in our time with the world a mess and people genuinely, genuinely terrified about the direction the world is, terrified about a lot of things, climate change, Trump, Biden, and take your pick. Everybody's terrified. And Christians can't choose to join one or another community of terrifiedness. It's not an option. Or a community of despair. We should stand out as a people of hope, which means to stand out, stand out as a people of joy, because hope communicates joy in the midst of our tribulations. Be of good cheer. Jesus overcomes the world. Hope rejuvenates us. Thomas Aquinas talks about the youthening power of hope. Hope makes us younger because hope gives us an infinite future. What makes us feel old is the fact that, you know, we might only have a decade or two decades or two and a half decades in front of us, then, and then it's the end. No. Infinite centuries, millennia in front of us. We can be as youthful in our 90s as we are in our teens. 
True hope is imaginative. William Lynch, a, a, a Jesuit psychologist, in a book called Images of Hope, uh, emphasizes the, uh, the, the element of hopelessness in every form of mental illness. Every form of in- mental illness has some note of despair connected to it. He, he talks about the way, way people uh, talk about their, their circumstances when they are suffering from some form of mental illness. There is no exit. There's no future. There's no point in even talking about it because putting one word after the other doesn't do any good. And what people in that kind of despair need is an expanded imagination to see their own difficulties and tribulations in a much larger frame. But they can only do that if they have hope. We have this kind of circular relationship between hope and expanded imagination. Or even think about political imagination. If we hope in Jesus as Lord of nations, that he is ruling the nations with a rod of iron and he is gathering nations to Zion to learn of his ways and to learn his law, if that's what we're hoping for, then there are political possibilities that are just not on the landscape of our political discussions. Hope expands our imaginations. Hope makes us audacious. Hope makes us patient. Another major thing that we need to see in our churches. If we are not allowed to choose one or another communities of terror, we're not allowed to choose one or another communities of panic or impatience. Conservative impatience, liberal impatience, doesn't matter. They're both impatience. Liberal panic, conservative panic, both of them are contrary to the gospel. We have as much time as we need. We should start thinking, instead of thinking, you know, everything turns on the next election cycle. Everything turns on what happens in the next year. No. Everything turns on what happens 2,000 years ago <laughs> and what God is continuing to do through his spirit. That's the, that's the real big story of human history. That's the real big story of our lives. And we can afford to be patient. We should be thinking up projects as the, as the medieval architects did. We should be thinking up projects and embarking on projects that will take 300 years to complete. Start a cathedral that you know you won't see finished. Start a project that you know others will have to take up after you die because you have hope in God that he will sustain a godly project to its end. Now, if what I've been saying is true, if God is the God of hope, if our hope is solid and endures in whatever whatever comes because Christ dwells in us as our hope of glory, then the source of hope is extremely simple. How do we sustain hope? There is absolutely no trick There's no formula. If God is the God of hope, if our hope is Christ in us as the hope of glory, then all we need to do is stick close to Jesus. We we just need to be in communion with Christ, our hope of glory, and make use of all the different uh, uh, ways that God has given us to nourish that union. Paul begins Romans 15 by talking about 
the scripture is written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. How do we have hope through the scriptures? Well, we look at what God has done in the past. We have, uh, we have um, uh, confidence that God will do what he's done in the past again. But the scriptures also, and most fundamentally, communicate hope because they keep us close to Jesus, who is our hope. We need to be at the table of hope that Jacob Hanby is going to be talking about later this week, later in the conference. We need to be at the table of the hope regularly. We need to be singing psalms of hope, as Trevor will be talking about later this afternoon. We need to be praying in hope. All the different ways that we, we already know of staying close to Jesus, of keeping in step with the Spirit. Those are the ways we nourish hope, and those are the only ways to nourish hope. And if we're getting panicky, or if our churches are descending into panic, then it's because we've drifted away from the source of hope, from the God of hope. The God of hope who dwells in us as Christ, our hope of glory. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you are the God of hope. You are the God who gives hope. You are the object of our hopes. All our hopes are in you. And Father, we thank you that you are the God who hopes, whose life itself is a life of hope, and that you've brought that life into us by your Spirit. We hope by the hope by which you are the God of hope. Keep us close to you, we pray, as we face the various tribulations, trials, troubles, the turmoil of our world. We pray that you would stay close to us and keep us close to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.